If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. We're in the Gospel of Genesis, chapter 13 today. We left off and Abram was at, um, at, a, at an altar, which is a very good place to be. Uh, it's been in great debate throughout the course of this week whether we should do 13 and 14, but um, there's, just, there's just such a beautiful point made in 13. I don't want us to skip past it as if this was some thoroughfare into something. Okay, now let's get to something meaty. Um, every chapter of this is just so beautifully full of beef that um, as Christian carnivores... We really want to sink in. So, um, look at it with me. Genesis chapter 13. If you're a vegan, I don't mean to offend you by that. It's, uh, it's so full of good asparagus. I don't know. Anyway, so. Chapter 13, verse 1. Read it with me if you would, please. Then Abram went up from Egypt and his wife and all that he had, and Lot was with him, to the south. And again, the word for south is actually Negev. That is the southeastern part of Israel we know as the desert. It's the area where Abram had passed through in the famine on his way down to Egypt. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where the tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot also, who was with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them. They might dwell together, for the possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And then there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. And between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Now please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go right. If you go take the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw the plain of Jordan. It was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself the plain of Jordan, or Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Now Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes, and I love the word now, and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land in which you see, I will give you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. So arise Walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. You pray with me, please. God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege and the honor to be able to open your word to be able to expect you to do something in this room, to teach us and instruct us and challenge us and exhort us and encourage us and equip us and prepare us. God, it's your work, not mine, not shorelines. It's your work. It always has been. This church is your church. And I submit myself as your servant. So God, please, in this room right now, as you hold all things together by your powerful word. And here in this room, we find ourselves all in desperate need of our next breath, which only you can provide. Our heart to beat that next beat, which only you can make happen. Our blood to flow. Oh God, we pray right now as you hold us together and you know us that intimately. 
You know every mole and birthmark. You know our quirky smiles. You know our cavities before the dentists discover them. You know how good or bad our eyes are before they're ever diagnosed. You know every thought, even those we quickly forget. Some parading as noble when they're not. You know all our regrets, our weaknesses, our fears. You know those things we would desperately want to hide from anyone near us. And those things we would parade. And in this room right now, as you know, even the dust under our shoes, oh God, please right now interface with each of us individually. Speak with direct avenue into our hearts and minds that which we really need to hear. But Lord, we've learned in Matthew 13 that, that when your seed, the seed of your word, falls upon the soil of man's hearts, that that soil could be in various different con- conditions. Some shallow and stony. Some seemingly impertinent altogether. Some already well occupied with thorns and thistles, weeds uninvited guests into the heart that are deleterious, destructive. So God, I pray, as we listen to your word, would you garden our hearts, cleanse our soil, purify our minds that we would not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, let your word bathe us now as you've promised and challenged husbands to do as representatives of you to their own wives, to wash them in the water word. So now as our groom wash us in your word, that you could say to us, even as he did your disciples, but you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And for me, God, get me out of your way. I want to thank you for the beautiful date you and I have had this morning. And I pray you would just immerse me in your spirit Fill me to overflowing that I would spill you in abundance upon each of these precious souls you bled and died for. So please have your way. May we walk out of here knowing we are so loved, so saved, so celebrated. And may we find ourselves loving, celebrating you in response. So have your way. May each moment be the moment you've commandeered. Let me not go a second too short nor too long. Keep me from being simply loquacious and verbose, but rather, Lord, speak now life into each of us, we pray, individually as well as corporately as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just think it's true or say it's true or assume it is because I say so or because I got a mic strapped to my head. Are there a lot of people out in the, in the entertainment industry who have mics like this strapped to their head, don't believe a word they say, um, some of those people. And, and again, study that beautiful book and challenge everything by it that you would test it to say, this is the tried and true. And having said that, now here we are in chapter 13. It's been some period of time now, 452 years after the flood, we find that this man is born that we know as Abram. He is, in essence, Noah's great-great-grandson, um, is this man named Eber, which will be very important, his name Eber, from which we get Hebrew from. Um, and from him, we'll have a great-great-great-great-grandson, Eber, and that great-great-great-great-grandson will be Abram, the man we find here. According again to Joshua 23.2, we read that this man, uh, Abram's father, lived in the land of Ur, and he served other gods. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, the man is 75, and God says, according to Acts 7, if we believe Stephen, and I do, uh, as he gives his perishah, he says, while Abram was still in that land of Ur, the area which was the Gulf War crisis of years past, and God says, look, and I need you, listen to me on this, please, I need you to separate. I need you to separate from your family, from your country, from your father's house, and understand that will become fundamental to our particular message today in 
And in this book of Genesis chapter 13, in essence, if I could kind of title it, it would be how to lose a lot and yet gain more. And, and in this, what we find is, is that Abram really doesn't do exactly what God had called him to. Now understand, every, every person we find that God seems to sort of highlight in Scripture always seems to go on some form of magnificent journey that always doesn't start in perfection and end in consistency. But what we find are these people who grow in their ministry and their understanding of who this God is. They grow in their obedience to this God as they learn more about Him. And that becomes the beauty. No matter who the person is that we find God chooses to highlight, we find a person that somehow comes from an a convoluted, polluted, kind of equal time at best situation with God and then finds himself either utterly ravished in his grace or turning his back on him in the end and we go, that's a bad aftertaste. And then we go, whatever the case is, don't do that. And that becomes the beauty of this because if God picked perfect people for anything other than our salvation, the one thing he did pick a perfect person for, which was his own son, well, then we would find ourselves disqualified. And, and, and the danger is, the more years we separate between these individuals and our study of them, well, the more we're more likely to make these people something they're not. And so what happens is when we find somebody that's growing, whether it be this individual or whether it be Peter in the New Testament or Paul, I mean, you start to look and you start reading the book of Acts and you just think, whatever Paul did must have been perfect from the beginning. Emulate him in your ministry. And yet what you find is Paul himself was on a learning situation. He's in school. And as we do that, we learn Paul has to alter his own ministry as he continues on, quite simply because it becomes one more of faith more on trusting the things of God and less on trusting his own devices and natural skills and talents. Which, by the way, for some of us, it's a lot easier to do that than others. Some are naturally good at arguing. Now, when you turn 13, a switch gets hit anyways, and you naturally argue, but that doesn't mean you're good at it. There's some people, on the other hand, they just have the edge. And you know it because you just know, and parents are just, we're not even going to talk about this. And often what that means is if we talk about it long enough, you might win the argument, but you're still not going to get what you want. And then you find there are some people that are just naturally good at it. And Paul, for instance, in the New Testament, will be one of those guys that was really good at arguing, but there's a radical difference between preaching the gospel and arguing your point. You can win arguments all day and never win a soul. And that becomes part of the, the transition of Paul's ministry. Now, in Abram's situation, Abram comes from a place of an idol-worshipping Ur, and God says, look it, I want you to separate I want you to separate from your dad. I want you to separate from your family. I want to separate from your culture. And I want you to leave all of that behind. And this is the good news, is you're not leaving one thing without cleaving to another. And that becomes the fundament. And all God says is, I'm going to personally be the one to show you where you're going. I'm not going to show you until you do it, but... On that, trust me, I need you to follow me. And by the way, what we're going to find is every time you leave something in the name of the Lord, you're going to find yourself cleaving to Christ or running back to it. And so God's like, look, if you leave that stuff, well, then on the other side of that, I'm going to be what you gain. Now, now that becomes the problem. You go, well, what would make a guy leave you know, and it's like, well, look at, think about it this way. God says, look at, you're 75, you're still living with your parents. It's a good time to move out, don't you think? And you're married. This is a good time. And don't you know it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, in defense of culture, we recognize that when a man got married, he usually built a house on the estate of his father. But at this point, God says, look at, we're going to completely reinvent you. We're going to completely reinvent your ministry, your outlook, your value system. Everything about you is going to be reinvented. Follow me and watch what I do. Everyone's calling you exalted dad or blessed dad. But you have no kids. You have no children. No, it doesn't seem like he leaves poor. But what's interesting is we read that he goes and he heads north. Now, Follow me if I could put this in sort of a parallel of where we are here. Imagine if the Lord spoke to Micah. Now, one good thing about Micah is he did not come from an idol-worshipping household. Not with his mother next to him, that's for sure. And, but let's just say he did for a moment. And, and he bowed down to all kinds of weird things and lit incense and did all kinds of goofy dances with cymbals on his ears. And, 
I love this stuff. And one day God says, like, look at Micah, it is time for you to leave London. I want you to leave your mom. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave it all. And Micah would be like, oh, okay. Where am I going? And God says, look it, follow me. Just trust me. And God starts heading east because what he really wants him is in Paris. And what happens is, mom, on the other hand, says to Micah, Micah, we're going to move to Scotland. And Micah's like, oh, okay. Well, God... I'm going to Scotland on the way to where you call me. And, and the whole point of that is, is, is we're probably aware, you don't have to be a brilliant in geography to know that kind of Paris is east of here, Scotland is north. And so he kind of does this big loop-de-loop on his way down. But we don't find anywhere in this route between this time that God calls him in Ur, or should I say London, and his route up to, up to uh, Scotland, where anywhere in there that he has any conversation with God. And it becomes this point where God says, look at this is the case. Let's leave all of this. I've got something for you. And then you go, awesome. God, Mom's moving to Scotland. I'm going with him. And God's like, okay, I'll wait. And we don't read any conversation. And now, <coughs> now how long does it be before sooner or later, Micah starts to wonder if he ate something weird one night when he heard that. Or, man, I should stop listening to that kind of trance stuff because it just, I'm hearing voices. And now, we, you know, should I get medicine for this voice hearing thing? It's only happened once. I'm pretty good about it. And what does God do? He waits until mom dies. And, and again, <coughs> pardon me for that, but especially with Sister Aaron's here. But the point is, is that God's like, I'm going to wait because I told you. I want you away from your dad. I want away from your father's household. Away from your family. And God says, I'll wait. And when dad dies at that point, or in this case, should I say, and mom dies, Micah decides, all right, Lord, where do we go? Now he's up in Scotland. And God says, well, I haven't changed my mind about where I want you. It's just a little farther now from where we could have gone. We could have taken a ferry. It would have been kind of a cool thing. We could have gone through the English Channel. Now we're going to go a little different of a route. Now you're going to have to fly Ryanair. Now, we're going to pack. Now listen, pack light, buddy, if you know anything about Ryanair. And, and, and Micah's like, okay, let me see. What do I have? What do I have? I have my Star Wars action figures collection. That's got to go. And see, what else? do I have? Ooh, I've got my you know, high school musical you know, blankets. I've got to take those with me. And, <clears throat> you know, oh, look it, i got my mom's Backstreet Boys record collection. Got to get some of those and some boys to men. That's going to be worth something someday. And so he starts gathering all stuff and he's packing it and he's going to take it with him. But none of that stuff really plays out. He doesn't even know where he's going. It isn't like, how do I even know this stuff's going to spend or sell or be important or valuable where I'm going? I'm just taking it with me because, what's well, my stuff. I mean, okay, so, so by this point, Mike is married, and let's just say his wife's name is Holka, and, and, and Holka, as we're all aware of, is, some, is Lithuanian or something for, argues a lot. And, and so he's got to tell her, all right, now that dad's dead, I mean, what a leader. And here's the point. It's not to pick on Abram. Actually, what it does is it helps us link with him. He's just a human being like the rest of us, learning how to obey the voice of God. And have you ever done it where God says, look it, here's on a scale of 1 to 10. I want you to go 10 with me. And you go, I can, 10. Did I hear 2? I think 2 is what I heard. And so I'm going to go kind of 2 with you. And God, aren't you pleased with me? And God's like, well, I'll wait. Because God knows the end. And because he knows the end, he's challenging us to a full-on walk with him. But somewhere in it, it's like you got a lot of ugly extra pounds you're going to need to lose on all this. And so off he heads up into Haran. Now, in Abram's case, he's going to go actually west. He's going to go northwest, and then he's going to head south. Now, in our case, what we'd be doing is we'd be going northeast and then heading east. But the same idea applies, that we're actually heading, well, really not the direction that we would have initially gone. Now, does that mean that that was a complete sin? I can't tell you what happened is that God ever said, Abram, I'm so sick and tired of you. You've already started this thing on compromise. The beauty of it is, is that God we just see is patient. Now, that's not to play on his patience. It just shows the mercy of this God that we serve. And he's got a lot to learn. I mean, he's got these four basic gods that he would have come from in the, end of, in the land of the Sumerian culture basin of Ur. He winds up in, by the way, he winds up in the one place where the most common God that is served is served in both. Interestingly enough, for what it's worth, it's this sky god and his name is Sin. I mean, is that just perfect or what? So um, they both kind of have that in common. So he's up there and while he's up there, his dad dies and now he had, starts heading down. And as he starts heading down, and it's interesting because we don't read about altars being made like that. God's like, all right, now it's time to go. And he heads down south. And as he heads down south, he builds an altar. 
God says, all right, now look at it. I told you I'd give you this land. But he takes with him Lot, his nephew, which, by the way, God never told him to take. He told him to leave behind. Now, that's not in cruelty to Lot. It's in purity to Abram. And understand there, sometimes we could really mask in nobility this misbehavior, disobedience. I know that because I have children. And I know what it's like to watch it. And I can tell you, I learned so much about my walk with Christ by their reactions to some of the things, how they can react in a way that I know, and even if we laid it on the table, it's really just rebellion, but it really kind of looks like a lot of other things. It's really well packaged as I didn't really hear you or I've been, you know, whatever it is. And then, and it's like the Lord always kind of takes me to the woodshed and goes, wow, where do you think they learned that from? I'm like, well, hats off for their brilliance, but really, the rebellion part's really bad. And God's like, yeah, I gave you the brilliance. The rebellion was your choice. Look what you did with it. And, and I realize in this that this man, again, he's learning. He's learning, and he's got, okay, wait a minute, there's this God of production and this God of provision and this God of protection and this God of pleasure. I mean, those are the four that we know in Sumeria, that we know in Syria, that we know in Mesopotamia. Everybody seems to have that. Well, no one Egypt. And Abram, on the other hand, he's got to learn that. And so God says, look, at I've got a kid on the way for you. It's just not yet and he goes okay you must be the god of production you're clearly the baby god how oh, that's awesome okay well that's a little weird <clears throat> we left i left house at 75 my wife was 65 you know she's getting a little old her biological clock is starting to really need a little extra winding and her name is already contentious it's fun for the story and off we head up and then as we head up and, and he, dad and it's like look at that's what it took for him to sort of separate that separation is what it took for him to take the next step of obedience recognize that death is one of those ways and it's interesting because from that, as he heads down, there's this altar that's being built. And God says, no, look, at it. I'm going to give you to your son. And he goes, oh, you're the baby God. And then from that, he starts to head south. And it's interesting because as he starts to head south, he builds a second altar right there in the area between Bethel and Ai. And by the way, these are beautiful names because these aren't names of the areas when he's there. These are names later on that will be given. But God says, look, at I've already made it a place where I've met with people before Jacob and I are going to have this cool little wrestling match later. This is a place now where it's going to be a place. And Bethel means house of God. And so here he is. He, he's, okay, so he's meeting in the second altar now, in the second altar. But you'd say, well, this is, I'm just moving, so I'm having an altar. You know, you're the baby God. And it's like, you know what? But then he heads south. And now as he heads south, things get a little awry. Because we don't be that God told him to go south at this point. He just said, look, I'm going to give you this land. Give me this land. Wait a minute. The baby God doesn't give land. That's a providing God. So he starts to head south, but he heads south into the strangest place. He heads into the desert. And the desert's a really strange place because you're probably aware of the fact it's just not the place for food. And, you know, it's, it's the place where people go thirsty. And as he's there heading south, again, we don't read about any communication, no conversation with the Lord, no great interfacing with the king. But instead he keeps going. He's like, well, things aren't good here. Oh, I hear that there's food down in Egypt, which, of course, will be a really great foreshadowing for something that's going to happen almost 500 years from now. And, and with that... He's going to, well, and actually even four generations of when I head in. And so he heads into Egypt. And when he heads into Egypt, he's got this other situation. Remember, he doesn't know about the providing that this same God is everything. That he's the God who protects. He's the God who provides. He's the God who actually brings pleasure beyond our wildest imagination. All he knows is he's the baby God. And he looks at his wife and goes, hmm, I'm not really sure what we're going to do about protection at this point. I'm going to need you to cover for me. Say you're my sister because if you're my wife, they're going to kill me and they'll want to marry you because you're fine. You're good looking. I mean, granted, you're ordering from the senior menu at places. You've got one of the, you know, the oyster card that does a now because you're a little older. But man, you're still good looking and they're going to kill me. And so off she goes, okay, I'm his sister. And off she goes, and all of a sudden you can see her looking out the window, and there's Abram getting lavish with all this stuff because Pharaoh's paying for it. He's buying this girl. And now Abram's got all this stuff, but the one thing he doesn't have is his wife. Which, by the way, seven times in the last chapter, God says his wife, his wife. He doesn't say his sister, he says his wife. You're aware of the fact that in my eyes, she's still his wife. No matter what she says, she's his wife. And no matter how he goes, yup, 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 still his wife. That's the way it works out. I haven't changed my mind. I don't take a vote on these things. And in all of that now, sooner or later, we read God plagues. It's the first time we read Pharaoh. It's the first time we read plague. And they're both together. Fun how that works. And, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh's like, oh, come on. But no conversation in Egypt between Abram and this God. He's not where he belongs. 
And here's the beauty of it. Like any person, he's going through this glorious spiritual evolution of learning who this God is. And here's the thing. Somebody gives their life to Jesus. They try to figure out who in the world he is. May we grow each day to know him better. That's one of the reasons why the Bible says, don't prop up some guy who just got saved and make him a spokesperson for Christianity. He's got a lot to work out. Some famous person that's a, you know, a star of some sort gets saved and they're like, give that guy a mic and make him our Christian representative. And he's like, I believe Jesus is. And you're like, oh, where'd he come up with that? It's like, you've got a lot of work, Holmes. Now we had all of this down there. Finally, it's Pharaoh. Now it's an unbeliever who looks and says, man, you need out of here. I don't know what you're about, but you, you lied to me. And I'm not even taking my stuff back. To shame you, you just take it all and go. And that's where we left off. Abraham has to go back to that place and he realizes that second altar and he's like, you know what? You're more than the baby God. You're the providing God. You know, I, I didn't need to run down to Egypt for all this. I could call out to you because now I'm going to call on your name and go, you know what? What in the world am I doing going? And by the way, for what it's worth, I challenge you to look as we see Egypt throughout Scripture. It is such a good emblem for the world. I mean, what the world has to offer. And you just find it to be the case. It's like, why in the world did I go to the world for something that only God can give me? But isn't that a classic example of what, and I don't know about you, but in my walk, that's what happens. I mean, I gave my life to the Lord and I'm like, okay, well, I need purpose, I need identity. And God says, I'll be those things. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but I already kind of have one. And God's like, yeah, but yours is lame. Mine's better. And you're like, yeah, but it's kind of cool. And God says, not in the sight of eternity. I've got something better. And it takes a while for me to figure out, well, okay, God, you win. You really are and should be my identity. You really are my life. You should be my life. But now I've got to get stuff. Where do I get stuff? I've got to go to the world for that. God's like, look at you're really going to get work there. And I find myself compromising to try to get from the world what God is supposed to give me and promise. Now I'm back at the altar going, okay, you're, gonna have, you're my provider. But it's easier for him to say at this point because he's filthy rich at this point is what it seems. Now he's come back and it's interesting if you compare the two because he's not the only one who came back with lots of stuff. According to the text, it says that Abram came back, notice with three things. He was rich in livestock and what else? silver, and gold. Which, by the way, is interesting because it appears to be the one thing that's kind of universally spendable. I mean, even in those days. It was like, doesn't matter whether you were in Ur or up in Syria and Hran or whether you were down in Canaan. And in all those places, gold and silver still spend. So the guy came back with something a little bit more universally spendable. He got it in Egypt. He also comes back with a few other things. He also comes back with this sweet little sweetheart named Hagar. You may be familiar with because she's a <clears throat> what we're going to read is she's a servant that he obtained while he was in Egypt, and that's how that trouble starts. Now, on the other side of that, we also read that Lot came back rich. Now, take a look at the text. What did Raj? What did Raj? What did Lot come back rich with? You tell me. Blurt it out when you see it. Come on, Bible students. Okay. Now, flocks, herds. I kind of get that. It's funny. God just said that was livestock, as far as Abram was concerned. Flocks and herds. What's the difference between a flock and a herd? A flock's what? Goats, sheep. What are herds? Bigger animals now. You're talking cows, oxen, that kind of thing. And tents. Tents? That's a really strange thing. Because why doesn't he come back rich in people? There's a big difference between people and tents. See, if you came back rich in people, what would happen is you had invested in people in a way that they are actually a blessing to you. They're a wealth to you. If you come back with tents, what that means is you come back rich in power. You have a lot of influence. Now, what tense means is, think about it. There's a difference between people and households. Let's put it in today's terms. And it's like Lot came back rich in households. What does that mean? That means he had a strong influence and a governance over an awful lot of households. He had a, a governance over a lot of people. It's an interesting thing at this moment. So if we were to parade the two people and say, what makes them look rich? You kind of see, I mean, if you pardon me for saying, and I don't mean, I mean no disrespect, Abram would kind of come walking in. He'd have a lot of bling on. He's got the gold, he's got the silver, he's looking good, you know. I mean, the guy's just got, you know, he's like, can check it out. And he's got, now, what are sheep and goats and livestock? I mean, that's basically his investments. So, I mean, think about it. That would be a guy that's got an awful lot of stocks and bonds. I mean, that's kind of the idea with this. The guy's got a lot of liquid capital is the idea, and he's looking big at it. Now, on the other side, Lot comes kind of stepping in, and he's obviously quite wealthy in real estate, even though it's portable real estate, if you think about it. And he's got, <coughs> and he's like, we're going to sort of 
compare it now. We're going to get the, the, the flocks and, and all. And that's kind of this stuff that's sort of liquid collateral. But we also got the herds. And what that means is herds, remember, those are the things that are your plows. Those are your vehicles. So in other words, so when Lot comes step and he steps in and he's got, check out my garage. And he's got, and he's got all the cars lined up. Like, Ooh, that's nice. Check out my tractors. Ooh, those are nice. You know, oh yeah, let me tell you what. But the biggest thing is, look at all those people. They're an influence to me. And that becomes really powerful because by the end of this chapter, notice, Lot's going to wind up in Sodom. And Lot didn't go there alone. Obviously, Lot there went with his wife. We're aware of that. And he came with a couple kids, or at least somewhere on the line he's going to have them. But in that, he's taking a city with him of people, of tents. Have you ever thought about the fact that all of these people who were so wicked, some of them may have been people he brought with him? That's a pretty radical thought, isn't it? I mean, what would it be like? And you're in this kind of little town. And by the way, for what it's worth, do you even know what the, what the terms Sodom and Gomorrah mean? I mean, that should be a, kind of your first warning. Sodom, by the way, means scorched, burnt, fried, toast. That's what it means. Now, who wants to go there? By the way, there's a little foreshadowing. You kind of get the idea. Hi, let's go to scorched. Well, yeah, okay. Well, what's it like there? Warm. Then, but then, the, then you've got this place called Gomorrah. And Gomorrah, by the way, or Amorach, means heap of ruins. There you go. Okay, now there's a place you want to send a postcard. Hey, we are at Heap of Ruins. Things are pretty beautiful. We're next to Scorch getting the tan. I mean, in it all, what we have is these places, and God's like kind of going, look it, that's what they're going to be called even before it's going to happen. And there you are in Scorched. And all of a sudden, you're keeping the gate, and you look, and there is a guy with who knows how many people. Three, four hundred, all with their tents and their backpacks. And they're all like, hey, we're here to move in. And that's why we read that he pitches his tent next to Sodom, not just in it. Why? Because he's got a city with him. He can't go into a city. I mean, imagine, have I mean, you ever been in one of those places? You, you probably get this feeling maybe, and, and I'm not just the only one. You're somewhere down and you kind of have a moment and it's a little bit peaceful and you're waiting for the train down in the underground and all of a sudden you hear, come on, hurry, 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 hurry. And then all of a sudden it's like 6,000 children pour in and your heart just goes, oh no. A moment ago, I was sure I had a seat or whatever. And all of a sudden, the kids are coming and they're flocking around like bees and hornets and all that. And then the doors open and they all file in. I mean, okay, maybe it's just me. But, but you get the idea. It's like this is a radically changed environment oh, for this moment. You know, a moment ago was relatively peaceful. I thought this is a moment I'm, you know, things are just going to be able to listen to my headphones and not worry about it. Now I'm going to, you know, kids are going to be bumping in and all that stuff. And I'm naturally grumpy. Forgive me. No. <clears throat> What would it be like and you're keeping the gate and now you have all of these people showing up and it's like, you don't know who they are. Oh, you know what this guy said? You know, think about it. You're sitting and you're watching the gates of Gomorrah or Sodom and some guy goes and says, look it, um, my uncle gave me this. And you're like, well, who's your uncle? Abram, who's that? We don't have any understanding that Sodom and Gomorrah have any understanding who this guy is. They have no understanding who the God is that these guys are serving. And we do read, by the way, for what it's worth in the New Testament, that Lot was a righteous guy. Now, it doesn't tell us that he was perfect, but he told us that this guy's soul was vexed by what he saw in his own society. I mean, the guy just, he moved into a place where his entire world was, his just spirit was going to be crushed because of the world around him. But he can't move into the city. He's got way too many people. So he's like, well, there's this big open plain area next to it. I know you were thinking urban sprawl, a little suburbia in time. Well, we are now your suburb. And so the guy comes in and just sets up things there. But what would that be like? Now, Lot and Abram have come back. And as they've come back, look at the text with me. Now, they're at this place. And notice, by the way, we're going to see a little bit of Abram's faith in action. It's a beautiful chapter for that. Because remember, if you really have reserved or resolved that God is the one who takes care of you, well, then this sort of makes sense to me. Now, again, back in our text, this is what we read. He's at the, again, in verse 5, Lot also went with Abram and had flocks and herds, and notice again, and tents. The land was not able to support them both, that they could dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Now, what's interesting is that wasn't enough to make them separate. Just because the land was not sustainable for the amount of animals that they had, we don't read that they actually separate at this point. But I remind you, God said, leave your family. That would have included this guy. And he's still in a state of not doing so. 
So how, what does it take? Notice in this, the next thing we read is that things are getting tense. This is what happens when, well, this is what happens when resources get smaller, isn't it? You watch it in marriages, you watch it in families, you watch it among friends. If everybody which is sort of has what's in abundance, nobody has a problem picking up the tab. No one has a problem going out. But the moment resources get a little bit more dim, now things get a little bit more tense. And at this point, now, now notice, I mean, the, the, I mean we could, if we, in other words, God would, if, we could, if God could say it in a simple sense, if he were sort of just simply telling the story, he'd say maybe perhaps he'd say it this way. If Lot and Abram had stopped for a moment just to think about where they were, it would have been quite evident at that moment that there was just no way that the two of them should be together anymore. Because you look around and you just surmise the area you're at and you just go, there's way too many of us and there's way too little land. We're going to need to do something about it. But Abram's not doing that. By the way, neither is Lot. So then it becomes arguing. Strife. By the way, it's going to be a word we're going to see. Interesting, the word for strife here, for those of you who are Bible students, is the word merba. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's the word we're going to find later on that Moses is going to have a problem with. And it because the idea of contending or having this strife or this, this sort of this issue to work out. And so these guys are, are having issues. And it's, and it's almost a, more of a legal term than it is anything. But basically, you've got these guys and they're just really angry at each other because the bottom line is there's not enough land for your herd. So who gets to the herd? Who gets to the land first? And then who gets there later on in the dance? It's, hey, 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 where is the grass? And it's like, hey, you, you know. I got here first, man. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Get over it. And it's like, well, I'm going to go tell Abram. Well, I'm going to go tell Lot. And it's like the whole thing just becomes completely unrestful. And it just becomes a mess. And this is what it takes. is this kind of conflict for Abram to do what God called him to. Don't you find that interesting? Now, let me ask you. Has God ever used conflict to solicit your obedience? You know, you're in unrest. Things are just getting bad. They're just getting, they're just getting downright wrong. It's arguing. It's nit, 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 and all this. And you're like, you know what? God told me a long time ago that this isn't supposed to be this way. That I'm not supposed to be with you. I'm not supposed to be in this society. I'm not supposed to be hanging out with this. This isn't where I belong is with you and whatever that you is. And you know what? I know the Lord's been saying that, but this conflict is going to grow to the point now where it's just getting out of control. We really need to change this. And the Lord will use conflict to get you where he wants you. And that's what happens here. For what it's worth in verse 7, it says, there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen's, herdsmen of, Lot, of Lot's livestock. And then there's this side statement. Look in verse 7 with me. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Now, why would God even make that statement? Go back to chapter 12, verse 6 for a moment. In chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morech, and the Canaanites were in the land. Do you start seeing a progression? When Abram went past the first time before he wound up in Egypt, the Canaanites were in the land. Now he's on his way back. He's in the area. We read the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land. And we're starting to see a lot more of these people that God ultimately is going to drive out of the land. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to Genesis 15, he'll tell us that it'll be the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Yebusites. There's going to be an awful lot of people. And what's happening is there's just more people populating an area now that really have no interest in the living God, which includes Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, with all of that, God's making this kind of statement where you kind of just see more people are piling in that really are just against the Lord. Now, because Abram now is kind of resolved in himself, now think about it, he's resolved that God's going to take care of him. So now he actually does what a man can do. And this is one of the places, please hear me out, this is one of the places where we really get to demonstrate to the lost world that God really is our provider. It is that when we get into an argument, we can concede. Now before, I don't know if you're anything like me, but before I gave my life to Jesus, there was no conceding. Man, we just fought until I won. That's just the way it worked. But there gets that point now it's like, you know what? Do you realize how stupid this issue is we're arguing over? And Abram here doesn't find any, and doesn't, we don't read that there was strife even between Abram and any of these people. It's just Abram's men and Lot's men. And Abram's going to do the final decision because he's kind of the patriarch in all of this. And Abram says, you know what? This is really nonsense. Look at, I'll tell you what. I'm just going to concede and say you get the choice. 
You pick wherever you want to go and I'll go the opposite direction. That shows me something. Now, in the New Testament, for what it's worth, in 1 Corinthians, we find that Christians are suing other Christians and Paul says that's a sin. He says there is no right for a Christian to take an, another Christian before an unbelieving court and try to tell them that Jesus is all we need. He says, why don't you rather be wronged? Why don't you rather actually let that guy think he got away with something? I'll take care of him. Don't worry. If you're dealing with two Christians, they're mine. They're my problem. Find somebody that you respect between the two of you and let that person sort of mediate the issue. But don't take it between an unbeliever because an unbeliever is at a moment like that looking and going, clearly these people don't, they obviously don't think that God's going to take care of it. They need our, our help like everyone else does. Well, understand in this, Abram now is in a place where he just trusts, look, God will take care of it. So why do I have to worry? You know what? Go ahead and take it. You just pick whatever you want and I'll just go the other. Now, what's interesting is I remember they just kind of walked through the Negev which is a pretty sparse, well, it's as sparse as any place is going to be in Israel. And as they head on up now, Lot does what any guy would do. That's sort of living in the flesh. He looks at his investments. Remember, this guy's a guy at the tents. He owns the tents. And he looks around and he goes, now that's good property. And as that's good property, that's what I'm going to take. He has no idea that ultimately that land's going to belong to Abram anyway. But as he does, he kind of looks around and he goes, Ooh, look at that, green and lush. And then God gives us this hint. And he says, by the way, notice, he goes, this is before I destroyed it. And you kind of go, ooh, so there are things where you can actually really run after that look really good at the moment that are still have a shelf life and have a moment marked off an appointment with destruction. And by the way, isn't that the sign of the world? Isn't that where we were before we knew the Lord? We chased after things and they looked green and they looked lush and they were shiny and they were really attractive. But in the end of it all, God says, but from an eternal perspective, this thing was just really temporary anyways. Have you ever chased after anything, got it, and then realized how temporary it was once you got it? Matter of fact, by the time you want to show it off to your friends, it doesn't look good anymore. You buy something and you're like, well, I can't wait to show it. And by the time you get there, it's already broken. And then you're embarrassed. And you're like, oh, okay, I can't even show it to people. Now I have to put it back in my bag. Well, that's the way God is speaking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's looking and he's just dwelling. He's just dwelling, whatever that is. He's just dwelling and, and, and looking at things from the perspective of the temporary. But it's shiny and it's pretty at the moment. And I tell you, when we start seeing those things, it's so wise as a Christian to back off and go, Lord, could you show me how you see it? Because you just might be seeing it in a way radically different than me. Is this thing really temporary or is it permanent? Because if this is temporary, I really don't want to be spending all my efforts getting this thing and then finding out in the end of it all I've grasped oil with my hand. You know what I'm saying? So Lot chases after all that. And, it is, and God says it's before. And he goes, but it is like this area. It's like the garden of the Lord in his eyes. It's also like a land. Notice he actually gives this place Zoar. Are any of you familiar with Zoar? By the way, for what it's worth, Zoar means little. What's really interesting is you'll find Zoar in about four chapters. Why? Five chapters. Because it's the place that Lot will flee to when he's running out of Sodom. So God's actually hinting at something else. It's, and if you think about it, that's actually a really cool place to flee to then. He flees out of Sodom. And where does he wind up? He winds up in a place that looks like the Garden of the Lord. Well, that's a pretty radical thought. But I mean, in other words, God's like, I already know Lot's whole story. Don't worry. It's going to look ugly for a moment, but I want you to know, I already know where he's going to wind up in all of this. I also know where Abram's going to wind up, and it's going to be really good. So go ahead and you take where you want. And Lot goes, that's hot. That's hot. I want that. Members are like, go for it, buddy. And off he goes. Takes his little city with him, and off they go and park next to Sodom. Next to Scorched. And we read then, <coughs> excuse me, verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly sinful, exceedingly wicked. Notice God says there's wicked and then there's exceedingly wicked. Now, you, do you really want to wind up in like the Guinness Book of, of Bible Records as exceedingly wicked? Sinful. And by the way, let me just say something. When God calls something evil or wicked, he doesn't just say he doesn't like it. God doesn't arbitrarily call something wicked because in the essence of it all, he just kind of like, I really don't like fruitcake, so I'm going to call it evil kind of thing. And we should never disguise or mistake what we don't like for what is unholy. We can all do it if we're not careful. Oh, there are certain things I don't like. I'll joke about them being evil, but in the end of it all, there's a big difference. What's funny is how we could be so busy 
harping on the things we don't like, we really won't even speak about the things that really are evil. Now understand, the word evil, ra'a in the Hebrew, literally means to cause harm, pain, or suffering. When God speaks about something and he labels it as harmful or he labels it as evil, what he says, he labels it as evil because he says this this will hurt you. That's the whole point. See, God is so into you, beloved. He's so into you that the things he calls evil are just the things that he knows hurt you. You could say, God, how dare you call that thing evil? That looks like fun. God goes, you can look and look at anything it wants to, but it hurts you. And if it hurts you, I hate it. Does that make sense? No, we're saying God would call cancer evil. He would call AIDS evil. For good reason. It destroys you. Now, if God didn't love you, he wouldn't call that which hurts you evil. But he calls what hurts you evil because he doesn't want you hurting yourself. He is head over heels, undeniably, irreversibly in love with you. And he doesn't want to watch you kill yourself. And the moment we think we're smarter than God, we can say, God, how dare you tamper with this lifestyle, with this choice, with this society or whatever. How dare you, God, because you have no idea how that kills you, how that hurts you. But notice in this, it doesn't just say that God saw that you were exceedingly evil or wicked. It says, against the Lord. Did you notice that? God makes a special note that the one thing that will kill you more than anything else is that which takes you away from him. If he created you to be with him and he's in love with you, then nothing could be more harmful, nothing could be worse to him than that which pulls you away from him. Nothing could be more evil, in my opinion, in regards to my wife than that which would pull her away from me, other than that which would pull her away from the Lord. Wouldn't that make sense? As a father, as I look at my children, what could be the things I would call the most harmful, the most evil, the most wicked, that which would cause the greatest damage to them? And I'm a wicked human being like the rest. I am naturally set on my own destruction if God not intervened. Praise God, he did. And these people were bent on their own destruction. Now, I remind you, God had already said this place is about to, take, is, is about to go down anyways. And now he shows why. Because the people that were there were already busy destroying themselves anyways. God's like, look it, I'm going to send, I'm going to let Lot go into the society and he's either going to influence it or he's not. If he's going to have influence, mercy comes with that influence. If he's not, and by the way, what we're going to find is is that if the entire society outside of Lot escapes with his wife, only Lot and his wife escape, in other words, the rest of society seems to be wicked, that means all the people that came with Lot wound up getting sucked into that society, not the opposite. There was no great influence. I mean, imagine if you came as a righteous community and brought and sat right next to an evil society, one of the two is going to win. Unfortunately, it's Sodom. It's scorched. And after now, Lot separates from Abram. And notice, by the way, it says, after Lot had separated from him. Notice it doesn't say after Abraham had separated from Lot. God pulled Lot away from Abram. Now God says, now look around. Now, now look around. Because you're one step closer to what I called you to initially. Look around. East, west, north, south, it's all going to be yours. It's interesting because never in history has all this land actually been acquired by Israel. I mean, this goes all the way to the Euphrates River. Do you realize how far east that is? So I want you to look at all this because all this is going to be yours. And then he gives us this beautiful promise. Listen to this, beloved. He says, then I will make your descendants, verse 16, like the dust of the earth. If you can count dust, you can count your kids. Your seed, verse 17, arise, Walk the land through its length and its width that I give you. That's the only thing God told Abram to do. Listen to this. God says, my job is to give you the land. Your job is to walk. Can you walk? Can you put one foot in front of the other? Can you walk with me, please? Because that's what I'm calling you to do. So he says, hey, look, here's the deal. Abram, I'm going to give you all of this, but you don't even know what I'm going to give you yet. And the only way you're going to know what I'm going to give you is if you walk with me. Now it's like, look, you don't even know these really cool places. You have no idea yet about the Jezreel Valley and how rich and lush that is and the banana trees that will grow from there and the way cool foliage and things you have yet to see. I mean, you have no idea what it's going to look like at the Sea of Galilee and how gorgeous it is when it gets so quiet you can hear the wind underneath the wing of a mud duck as it flies by. But you're going to see that. So Abram, this is what I'm asking you to do. If you walk with me, I'll show it to you. In any place you walk, I'm going to give you. Now, which one of you, if you're actually the kind that says, okay, well, then I want it, Lord, doesn't say, let's go. I mean, my first thought is, Lord, could you make me healthy? Because let's get on some trainers and get moving. 
Because in a moment like that, the Lord's like, look, at, I'm, I'm not asking you to earn this. I'm not asking you to fight over it. I'm not asking you to kind of strive it and pump out and squirt out and sweat out your righteousness. I'm asking you to walk with me. If you can walk with me, I'm going to give it to you. Now, it isn't like you're going to get all the land at once. We're going to walk, and as we walk, we're going to get more land. God says, look, I'm not asking you to do something difficult. I'm asking you to follow. The difficult part of that is in the humility, not in regards to the strength. But Abram, you've got so much to learn, like the rest of us. Isn't that beautiful? Now, walk with me. Now, now, let me lay out a standard as we bring this around and go in for the kill on it, okay? And in the end of it, I'll look at verse 18. It says, Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt near the Terebinth trees, which is in Hebron, which for what it's worth is about 22 miles south of Jerusalem. I mean, this is, by the way, from where he's going to be. We don't know where he starts off in Canaan, but this is quite a walk. In other words, Abram gets walking. And that's a really cool thing because ultimately Abram is just about in the place where he's going to discover that third thing about God. That's our next chapter. Now, in all of that, he builds another altar. Now, this is something to learn from. Okay, look, at I'm not moving without taking an altar with me. Because, God, the one tent that matters isn't how many households I have influence over at this moment or have authority over or whatever the case is. The one tent that I want to be the most responsible for is the one that I make sure that my heart's on sojourn, that I'm a pilgrim in this land. And I'm not going to stick my hands deep into this ground without making sure something's planted there. Because, man, I just want to make sure that I'm right with you first before I just start walking around this earth. So we built an altar there to the Lord. Now, follow me on this for a moment because I want you to, and again, don't just believe me, but hear me out on this, please. According to James 2.26, death is defined as separation. It tells us this. Is the body without the spirit is dead. Faith without works is dead. One thing separated from another is what, is God, what God defines as death. That's why, of course, we feel great grieving when somebody dies that we love because we are separated from a relationship with them. By the way, that's what God will call us in regards to spiritually dead, is that what happens is we are separated from the God of life, and him being separated, we're dead. We could walk, we could breathe, we could be animated, but we could still be spiritually dead. Now hear me on this. Death in one thing will bring about life in another. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent of the body is to be present with Christ. You're going to be dead to one thing, but you will be alive to the other. You'll be alive to the world, you'll be dead to Christ. It tells us, for instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. There's that separation, but he will be joined to his wife. Now, don't miss this, because this becomes the fundament for every bit of this. This is what we learn as we glean from this, is that for Abram to learn, he has to separate from something. For everything that he separates from, he has to, in other words, for everything that he leaves from one place, he's going to cleave to God on the other side of it. God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. That's the key of this. And the moment you try to share Jesus with someone, they're like, look it, I don't want to lay all this stuff down. It's like, look it, you are laying this down. This is what you are separating from so that you have something to gain on this side. But people don't see what they gain. All they see is what they lose. But it's not just the cross, it's the cross and the empty grave. The cross is where everything is severed. The empty grave shows us what we cling to on the other side to that. But what happens with Abram is he's learning that like we are. That there are things we need to sever. There are things we just need to cut the cord and say, this, I don't belong here. This is not where I belong because this thing is feeding me death. And on the other side of it, God says, but you're not just leaving that, you're cleaving to me in the process. As a matter of fact, this is the way we say it when we realize that you can't have both. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, it says, while we are at home in the body, we're absent of the Lord. As long as we're going to be at home here, we're not going to be at home there because you can't have both. You can't serve both masters. You're going to serve one. You're not going to serve the other. You're going to love one. You're going to hate the other. You're going to be alive in one place and dead in the other. Now you've just got to choose which one you want to be alive in. The problem is one of them has an expiration date. And you could be Lot and choose them. It's cool to have the background music on this. It's like theme music as we bring this to a conclusion. All right, now listen. Now in all of this, 
You can choose to be like Lot and chase after this world and say, this is beautiful, it's shiny, it's lush, it looks so promising. And God says, but this whole thing is temporary. And if you're going to be alive here, you're going to be dead in the other world, which is the one you need to be that doesn't have a shelf life. And one day I'm going to blink and I'm going to stand before my king and God's going to say, cast in on the things that are eternal because you've been laying your your treasures in heaven for quite a while. And there are others that are going to stand there and say, everything that I gain has been left at the door. So thus, Romans 6.4 says it this way. It says, Therefore, we were buried with Him in baptism through death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. If we've been united together in the likeness of His death, well then certainly we will be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin may be done away with. There's our old death. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is now freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Death to one brings us life with the other. Likewise, then, you should also then reckon yourselves or account to yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8.10, it says, If Christ is in you, your body is dead to sin, but your spirit is life because of righteousness. <coughs> Separation is necessary. Now I have a question to ask, and I'm going to read two more texts, and we're going to pray. Is there anything right now in your life that you know, you know what, I just need to cut the cord on this. God has been telling me for a long time I don't belong in this. This is not where I need to be, and I need to sever this. But I'm not severing this because I'm just... I mean, it would be enough to walk away from it because it's just right to do. But God's like, look it, you are trading me in for this thing. And I'd like you to lose your lot today to gain your Lord. That's the point of it. Here are the texts. And of course, you probably expect I'm going to pull this one out. And that's 2 Corinthians 6.14. Listen to this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Communion has, what communion has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement with the temple of God and idols? You're the temple of the living God, beloved. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Come, therefore, come out from among them and separate, says the Lord. Don't touch that which is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of this flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Isaiah 52, 11 says, Depart, get out from here. Ezra 10, 11, as they had married then, those that had served other gods, he says, Look, it's separate yourself. Revelation 18, 4, I heard another voice speaking in heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. Please hear me out. This is how it starts. We start with the idea of being attached to a dead body. That dead body has no interest in the living God. doesn't matter who you are. You're naturally rebellious, just like me. That much I know. How you act out, the rebellion may be different, but we're all rebellious people. We're naturally people set on our own destruction. And God wants us anyways. And He loves us. Paul would say <clears throat> in Romans 7, Who will separate me from this body of death? Which, by the way, in those days was the way that you killed prisoners. It was a capital punishment. You took a living prisoner and you, and you chained on that living prisoner a dead body. And as that dead body corroded and eroded and the staphylococcus and other bacteria started to eat away at it, it melted its way into your body because the living body doesn't win over the dead. The dead body wins over the living and Paul says, Paul, when he looked at the world and the person he used to be, he goes, who will separate me from that? That was like a dead body chained to me. And God says, I'll do it. The only thing that can sever that will be someone to take your place. I'll take that death upon myself instead. And Jesus chose to come onto earth, to be tempted in every way yet without sin and take the torture I and you rightly deserve because he's so in love with you, he'd rather die than live without you. And beloved, hear me out. God says, it's time to separate. I want to separate you from your death. 
I want to separate you from your guilt. I want to separate you from the world you came from that destroyed you. Now, I'm not telling you go and hide out in a cave. What I'm telling you is pull your heart out of that place and use it as a ministry now. Don't look at it and go, I need to draw from the world and I want to love the world and I just want to fall in love with... And guys, just be careful. That's the stuff that kills you. He goes, look, get your heart out of that. It's time to cut the cord on that. And when you do, you start looking at the world a whole different way. All of a sudden, I start realizing it's a world that needs rescue. When a person were dying from something horribly infectious, I've got to be careful how I approach that body. I don't want to just throw myself on it and say, maybe my living body will make them feel better in my health. The bottom line is I want to approach that thing with the intent of seeing that thing made better, not just trying to make myself one with it. We recognize that in any form of medical profession. Well, we should as Christians because we're the one people who have the cure to the entire world's ail, the eternal ailment, and that terminal illness is that of the guilt of their own sin, which we ourselves have rightly accrued, but Jesus himself paid for it. So hear me out as we go to prayer. First of all, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ who at the cross took all of your guilt and your filth and your nastiness and shame and nailed it there and paid for it in full? And then rose again and said, look it, if you are willing to leave that, I offer you me in its stead. I want to love you and adopt you and lavish you in my love and engulf you in peace and in joy. Will you take that? But if you said yes to Jesus, is there anything that God says, now look it, on our journey I said leave this. And you're not leaving it. Part of your identity, a part of what you think is important, but God says it's not important where I come from. A society you're hanging out with that you know ain't right. A relationship you're in that just doesn't belong. The Lord says, look it, don't trade that in for me in the sense of leaving me behind for this thing. I want to be your everything. You know what? I have never been so fulfilled in my life. And I want you to have it too. You pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for Abram's journey and how we can learn from it. Lord, next week as we learn about how you become our protector, how we grow to understand you as our protection, this week, Lord, you've shown us the necessity of separation, how to lose our lot, to gain so much more. And Lord, it's this point where Lot pulls from him. And in that, Lord, you say, now look at what I want to give you. And Lord, I just wonder how many of us in this room right now dwelling in some form of compromised state just to try to hold on to something, God, that you said let go of, that in that, God, you have so much more to give us. And yet we're so busy holding on to this thing, God, that we, God, we're just not seeing your promises like we should. How bigger your plan is. How more grand and grandiose. Because we're still holding on to something that had a shelf life that is expired. That's marked for destruction. And yet we are still busy trying to polish it and prop it up and protect it. And in the end of it all, God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cave. It's going to fall. It's going to shatter. It's going to burn. And, and here we are so busy trying to protect it that we don't have time even to raise our hands to you because they're <coughs> tired from protecting that which... We shouldn't be holding on to in the first place. God, I, I, I just want to ask your forgiveness. If there's any part of my heart that's done that, Lord, or is in the state of that right now, convict my heart, Lord, eradicate from it that, that I would in total purity worship you. So God, please, right now, in this hot, stuffy room, make us people, Lord, who love you without compromise. God, that we would be willing to pull our heart out of the places that batter it if we were honest with ourselves. And Lord, if we were honest with ourselves as we stand on this precipice at this moment, this apex, and we look around, we recognize that there's just not enough of the world around us available to sustain both a person who pursues the world and pursues You, our heart's not big enough to do that. We're only designed to kiss one person at a time. And God, I pray that my love and affection will be absolutely yours. And as you introduce things into my life, Lord, maybe even talents and skills you've already given me, but may they be entirely for you in such a way, Lord, so that I could sense your pleasure when I do so, not your concern. Father, I pray that you would Give me the wisdom to yank the cord, the courage, 
And the faith to trust that what you what, what I let go of, you replace with so much better. So God, right now, put that resolve in our hearts, whatever that need be. Lord, that I would yank my heart out of where my heart needs to be gone. That I could love people the way they need to be loved, not the way that I think I should love them for my sake. And right now, Lord, in the holiness and sanctity of this moment, if there be anyone who has not accepted your gift, when you paid the price at the cross for all of our guilt, to separate us from that filth, that guilt, to de-chain us from the death that we are strapped to, that we've earned, and then you rose again to offer us a new life that we could be, we could leave the old and cleave to the new, that we are a new creation now in you. If there's, no, if there's anyone who has not accepted that gift and knows they need to today, show them by your Holy Spirit. And if that's you and you are not even sure if you've accepted the gift of Jesus, I'm going to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And as you listen to this prayer, if you agree... But they ask for you just to simply, at the end of it all, say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I am a sinner and I need to be separated from my guilt, my sin, my addiction to my own destruction, my love for myself that uses other people. And I just want to surrender myself to you today, trusting Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for all of my wrong and rose again to give me new life. So I say yes to you, confessing Jesus as my ransom, my redeemer, my savior, and my Lord. So I say yes to you. Now have me, I pray. I surrender to you. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, amen. Amen.